Well, again, we're glad you're here. We're starting a brand new book today. A book that I think is one of the greatest books of the Bible. And I believe that we will discover that in and through it, God will meet us here in His Word to encourage us in a time such as this. As we learn from an individual that spent the vast majority of his life serving his God in very trying circumstances. Circumstances that we would have a very difficult time to identify with, to relate to. And yet God has given us this book to show us two things. Number one, that God is in control of all things, that He governs the affairs of man. And number two, that no matter where we find ourselves, we are to remain faithful to Him. And by doing so, He will give us the ability to do so. The title of this series is A Stranger in a Strange Land, and today we dive into the book of Daniel together. Again, one of the greatest books in the Old Testament. In fact, in the whole Bible. I want to help you identify and relate to Daniel as we go through this book together. We're going to read things and see things that are go- it's going to stretch our mind. It's going to cause us to question in our heart. And yet at the end of our journey together through the book of Daniel, I believe that all of us will be standing on firmer ground in our relationship with God than we had when we first began. To relate to Daniel, it's not only to relate to the circumstances and the situations that Daniel finds himself in, but there's an emotional content to it also. An emotional context that we also have to touch and feel. Now, you know me. I often say that I believe too many people rely on their feelings rather than their faith. But in this particular case, to help us understand Daniel, let us understand him to be the boy becoming the man that he did. Let me ask you three questions, if I may, to help you with that emotional identification with Daniel. When you were a child, did you ever get lost and separated from your parents? That was one of the great great, um, traumatic experiences I had. I got lost in a store called Kmart. I was a little guy. You know, I, I hadn't been separated from my parents before. I think I was 13. No, I'm kidding. I was a little guy, probably six or seven years old, and I, of course, wandered off. And it was just like you see in some of those movies or television uh, shows where all of a sudden the little guy is separated and all of a sudden the, you know, the shelves grow higher. And of course, being as short as I was, I couldn't see over the shelves. I couldn't find my mom and dad. I felt that separation. I felt what it meant to be alone. I understood that insecurity that comes when you feel like you're lost. Have you ever gone to a place, maybe as simply as a restaurant or maybe 
on a vacation to a nation that doesn't speak the language that you speak? And there's a huge communication breakdown in between you and those in whom you are trying to speak with. You're looking for anybody that can speak the language you speak. Have you ever lost everything? Thinking that you have to now start all over again from the very beginning? And for Daniel, I ask you this. Imagine all three happening all at the same time. This allows us to know that when Daniel was taken from his home in Jerusalem at the siege of the Babylonian Empire through the King Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel was 15 years old when this occurred. He lost everything. He was separated. Most likely his family was killed. And to top it off, he found himself as a stranger in a strange land, unable to identify with those who are his captors. Not there voluntarily. Not there because they simply lost a battle to a foreign enemy. But he was there due to the fact that that's where God would have had him. For a very specific purpose. The question I now ask of you is this. What would you do in Daniel's position at that moment? How would you respond? How would you react? But in and through it all, Daniel will learn one great lesson that God governs the affairs of man. And nothing will stop God from fulfilling the plan and purpose that he has set forth before the foundations of the world. And secondly, Daniel will learn that even in a foreign, strange land, you can be faithful to God, and God will meet you there and show up strong. I believe this book is incredibly timely. I believe this book will encourage us in the time in which we find ourselves. I believe that the example of Daniel is one that we can all Look and be inspired by. Look to and be inspired by. Often we forget that God governs the affairs of man, but at the beginning of this nation's history, it is recorded for us that in September of 1787, when the new nation was forming, that they came to a roadblock. It's kind of stalemated. It became stagnant in its progression of development. And Benjamin Franklin got up and he addressed there George Washington. And he said this to him in the wake of that stalemate. He says, For sir, I have lived a very long time. And the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth, he says, that God governs the affairs of all men. And so Benjamin Franklin, not being a uh, strong Christian himself, more probably the fact that he wasn't, but he had a reverence for God, then suggested that they bring the clergy in to begin a prayer meeting to help things along. Unfortunately, they couldn't do, do that because they didn't have the money at that time to pay the clergy. 
But Daniel will make it clear that God Almighty is sovereign over all the affairs of the world because history is his story. But secondly, Daniel each and every day will realize that not only is it important to know that God is faithful to us, but it's important for us to remember that we need to be faithful to God. And we will fail at times. And that's when we fall back on that beautiful promise that when we are faithless, He is faithful. But Daniel will learn to purpose in his heart, to set his heart apart for the service of God, even in a strange land. And each and every day, God reminded Daniel of a very significant truth, simply by the Hebrew meaning of Daniel's name. God is my judge. That ultimately, Daniel knew in his heart that the ultimate uh, uh, appointment that he had at the end of his life was to stand before God and give an account of all that he had done for God. And so Daniel allowed that to guide his life. But coming into the Babylonian Empire, they did not want Daniel to remain the faithful Jewish man that he was. They wanted him to become a Babylonian, schooled in all the wisdom and literature of the Babylonian Empire. Because we will find that Daniel will be selected to become one of the counselors to the king himself. What a trial that is. For it was an honor to be called a counselor to God. I'm sorry, to the king. But to do so, three years of training were required, and he would dive deep into all of the aspects of the Babylonian culture. From their form of government, from their philosophical ideas, even to their pagan religions. And yet, in and through it all, Daniel excelled because he showed and demonstrated each step of the way that the God in whom he served was the only true God. And he was going to stand strong in that knowledge. And each and every time an opportunity presented itself to allow Daniel to glorify his God, he took that opportunity. And magnified the Lord to show that the Lord was superior to anything within the Babylonian Empire. Well, we begin. Let's open our Bibles to chapter 1. As we begin our walk through the book of Daniel together. And we begin, of course, in verse 1. Let's read. Now in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah... Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came against Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hand which some of, with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he brought the articles in to the treasury of the house of his God. King Nebuchadnezzar came against the city of Jerusalem and Judah three times. The first time was in 605 B.C. And at that point, he simply captured the royal family and he captured those associated with the royal family 
and either killed them or brought those who he desired with him back to Babylon. Daniel went in this first accompaniment, this first group of people, demonstrating that he was in some way affiliated with the royalty of Jerusalem, but we're not sure how. And he finds himself 14 or 15 years old at this time. In the second siege against Jerusalem in 597 B.C., further captives were taken. Further destruction was leveled. And finally, in 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar flattened everything, including burning of the temple there in Jerusalem. Now, all of this, of course, was at the hand of God. He was judging His people for their unfaithfulness, for their worship of pagan gods, for not allowing the land to rest as He had prescribed them to do. Isaiah talked about this a hundred years before it actually occurred. Jeremiah preached into it, warning the people before it occurred, telling them what was going to happen if they chose not to repent. And God made good on his word, holding them to the conditions of the promise of the Mosaic Covenant that if they were to obey him, he would bless them, and if they were not to obey him, he would curse them, Deuteronomy 28 and 29. But Daniel makes it clear, and he sets this up for us for chapter 5, that some of the articles that were in the temple were taken by Nebuchadnezzar and brought into the temple of his pagan god, most, most likely Marduk who was the god of Babylon at that time. Showing that, or appearing as if, their pagan god was stronger than the one true god. Now that would have been from their perspective. But God told us that this was all at His hand. And when they treated those sacred items in a casual, flippant way, God wrote on the wall. But now we accompany Daniel into the city of Babylon, in the land of Shinar, where the first ziggurat or uh, the Tower of Babel was originally constructed back in the book of Genesis under Nimrod. But this sets the stage for what takes place next. But one commentator wrote on why Israel fell and continued in their sin. And I want to read this to you because I think it's important. The nation's ungodly kings and civic leaders, the false prophets and the faithless priests were the cause of the moral decay and the ultimate destruction of the nation. How strange that God's own people didn't obey him, but later we will see Nebuchadnezzar and the pagan Babylon army did obey him. Notice what he says there. Let me say this again. This commentator looked at the entirety of the Old Testament and it said, number one, it was due to the failure of the ungodly kings. Number two, the civics leaders. Number three, the false prophets. And number four, the faithless priests. A nation goes the way of its leadership. And we see that today better than we ever had before. It is astonishing what is taking place 
today in our nation. Things that we are contending with just five years ago we would have never considered. Decisions are being made on our behalf. Lies are being given one right after another. Instead of an elected democracy, we see more of an authoritarianism governing our land. Do as I say, and of course not as I do. But so go the leaders, so goes the nation. And it's not only those who are at the top of the pyramid, but those underneath them that also contributed to the fall of Israel, the civic leaders. Then the false prophets, individuals that should be speaking the truth on behalf of God, they failed too. And these false prophets contributed to the problems. The church is just as much to blame as the politicians are here in the United States of America. We should have been screaming from the pulpits of the dangers of Marxism and socialism and so forth. Because if our public schools aren't going to educate our individuals, then it has to come to the responsibility of someone else. But then he adds one more. The faithless priests. These are the individuals that serve God. These are the individuals that were set aside for His purposes. Today, we know that we are all priests in and through the new covenant that Jesus Christ has established. Sometimes I don't know if we consider that our own personal faithlessness has also contributed to the moral decay of our nation. When I read about 65% of Americans identifying them as, themselves as Christians, I'm like, what church do they go to? What Bible are they reading? Because it's not the same as mine. And then you find that only 3 to 4% of those 63 believe that the Bible is actually God's Word. We all have a degree of blame. But what do we do now? We can continue to point fingers or we can get busy and start fixing the problem. And we're going to start praying. And we're going to start petitioning the God of heaven. Because he is in charge of the affairs of men. But it doesn't stop there. We have a personal responsibility to be the men and women God has called us to be. And that's what Daniel did. Because now we find that he was brought into a position that he never asked to be in. Let's continue in verse 3. Then the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of the eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had the ability to serve in the king's palace and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed them a division of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank and three years of training for them so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. Now from among them of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And to them the chief of the eunuchs gave names he gave Daniel the name of Belteshazzar, Hananiah, Shadrach, 
Mishael, he gave Meshach. And to, Abed, uh, to Azariah, he gave Abednego. Daniel now finds himself in a place that he never thought he would find himself. Growing up somewhere in the vicinity of the royalty of Israel, there in Jerusalem, undoubtedly being groomed and his pedigree allowed for the fact that one day he would play a role in the governance of Jerusalem and Judea. Now he finds himself as a stranger in a strange land. At 15 years old, selected, appearingly by the king, to be a counselor and first requiring to be trained for three years. And again, as we said from the beginning, the Babylonians were not uh, satisfied with simply allowing them to continue in their Jewish faith. They wanted to assimilate these people. They wanted these people to conform to their culture, to their ideas, to their gods. And to eliminate their personal identity, notice the first thing that they do is change their personal names. Because remember, Daniel meant uh, God is my judge. But all of them in their Hebrew names had meaning. For example, as we talked about Daniel, for God is my judge, but it was changed to Belteshazzar or Bel, protect his life, which was again another god of that culture, of that empire. Hananiah means the Lord shows grace, but his new name, Shadrach, means command of Ekuk, the moon god. Mishael, who is like, his name means who is like God, but his new name, Meshach, means who is as Eku is. And Azariah meant the Lord is my help, but Abednego means a servant of Nabu. Trying to assimilate them by changing their name. And in the assimilation of the change of their name and the indoctrination through the three years of training, It was the hope of the Babylonian Empire to remove their history from their knowledge. To lose the ideas of what their impersonal nations were built upon. And of course, in this respect, it would have been to erase all of the workings of God in and through His people Israel. Isn't it interesting at how often we are told that we need to erase our history in the United States of America. To bring people into an assimilation with the ideas carried forth in our current administration. We need to forget those things of the past. Any statue in which offends us, we tear down. Because we don't want to remember. We don't want to recall these things. And they are trying to bring us to a point of subjection by erasing our history. Now, trust me, I'm going to be very frank in the series of Daniel, okay? And if you have a complaint, there's an email address I'd like to give to you to an email box that I never check. But here's why, folks. For years, the public educational system has done a very poor job in the instruction of history. And now it's being erased even further. I used to laugh when I used to see Jay Leno go out onto the street and interview people. Now, this is going back a ways. Once again, I'm showing my age. 
And he would ask, what decade was the Vietnam War? And they would say, 1940. You know. Who did we fight in the Civil War? The Koreans. We've forgotten our history. And in that history is not only our victories, but also learning from our mistakes. And remembering the life's sacrifices to bring about the changes that we have brought about up until this point. You see, they don't have good arguments for the arguments that they're putting forward today. It doesn't hold water. So the way that they bring us to a place of uh, acceptance and vulnerability is to erase that in which we know and call us names if we hold to anything that they don't currently hold to. I'm sorry, but how often can you call a person a racist who's not a racist and it still have the same effect? Why are we still blaming the previous administration for the difficulties of today? It's never anybody's fault. Never t- anybody takes responsibility. And of course, never, apparently never can one be, or I should say admit, that he or she is wrong. So Daniel was faced with a dilemma. What does he do? He's not there by his choice. And you may think, well, he's there because of King Nebuchadnezzar's choice. But in actuality, he's there because that's exactly where God would have him. So what do you do? If he refuses, he'd be executed. He's being offered a place of privilege in the empire. What do you do? You do what he did in verse 8. You purpose in your heart not to defile yourself. Notice what he says. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with wine in which he uh, drank. Therefore he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself now god had brought daniel into favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs and the chief of the eunuchs said to daniel i fear my lord the king who has appointed your food and your drink for why should he see you and your face looking worse than the young men who are your age then you would endanger my head before the king. The one thing that Daniel could do is purpose in his heart not to defile himself. This is the one thing he could do. That word purpose means this, to set upon, to put in charge, and to commit. Our response right now today, if we are going to be agents of change in our society, is we must purpose in our heart not to defile ourselves, but to walk with our God. That's where it all starts. It starts with us. If we want revival to break out, we can't ask for it to start somewhere else without first seeking it to start right here in this church. We can't do it. Jesus said of the religious leaders when he walked this earth, he said this, 
For you draw near to me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. Here is a 15-year-old boy, a stranger in a strange land, faced with an an incredible dilemma. And this 15-year-old boy says, I will purpose in my heart. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to ask and I'm going to seek the favor of the one in whom God has already given me favor and see if God will meet us here. Daniel had no control of the circumstance. He simply purposed in his heart and God met him there. We need to look for opportunities in uh, situations where God has given us favor with people who may diametrically oppose our worldview. And we must work with them and encourage them and allow them to be near us so that we can influence them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because who knows who God will save if we give Him an opportunity to do so through our lives. That's what Daniel did and that's what we need to do today. I like what one writer said. He said, God would rather have His people living in shameful captivity in a pagan land than living like pagans in in the Holy Land and disgracing His name. Let me read that again. God would rather have His people living in a shameful uh, captivity in a pagan land than living like pagans in the Holy Land and disgracing His name. But now Daniel's being brought into a circumstance where he's going to be subjected to three years of intensive education. Learning of the wisdom and the literature of the culture of the Babylonian Empire. Now as Christians, we're faced with a quandary. A quandary that was raised by a church father named Tertullian back in 160 A.D. to 2. 20 AD. Tertullian wrote in his writings that we should not be uh, subjected to these things. He asked a question in his writings. He says, what indeed has Athens to do with Jerusalem? Why should we even be concerned about those things in the world? What concord is there between the academy of the church? I'm sorry, the academy and the church, he also wrote. So then, we are faced with a dilemma. Do we learn of the world's affairs, or do we separate ourselves completely? And you see Christians going in one of two ways, and often it's to the extreme in both the cases. Some churches have buried their head in the sand, like an ostrich saying, you know what, it's not going on around us, we're not, everything looks okay to us, we don't want to hear what's going on, la 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 la, you know. Uh, my wife's a preschool teacher, so you've got to forgive me when I use those things like that. But other churches have become so politically focused that the gospel is secondary. And both cases are wrong. We need to walk a balance between the two. So I go back to Scripture. What would God have us to do? Joseph was educated in Egypt before he took the position he took. Moses was educated in Egypt before he took the position that he took. Esther was educated uh, in the land in which she found herself before becoming the queen. Daniel learned the ways of the land in which he found himself. Paul used secular quotations and quotes in Acts 17 and in other places, knowing the culture 
But like one very famous pastor said, Pastor Robert Murray McShane from, of course, Scotland, uh, he said this, that in handling these philosophies and the atmosphere of the classics, true, we ought to know them, he says, but only as chemists who handle poison to discover their qualities and not to infect our blood with them. We need to be aware of what's going on around us. That we can intelligently respond to those people who have questions. And here's something that I'm finding out, guys, and maybe you found this out too. That people who appear to be staunch, uh, you know, uh, in, staunch individuals in other ideas and ideologies and philosophies in opposition to our views. You know what I've found out? Many of them, not all, but many of them have got the depth of the knowledge in which they hold from TikTok. They haven't thought it through. There is one teacher that I had says they're as deep as a teaspoon. And as soon as you ask good questions... As soon as you start asking those questions that take you past the surface situations or the surface circumstances, guess what? They don't have answers. We have been educated on bullet points rather than looking uh, clearly and rationally and objectively at the information before us. We need to be aware of what's going on around us. We need to read sources that disagree with us, that we may know the positions in which they hold and and come at us from, but we also need, more importantly, to know God's Word and how that Word counters what they say. That's just it. We're going to have to do it, guys, you know? Because here's what I've seen over the last 25 years. Part of the reason that we see the condition of the current public school system is because Christians for decades have backed off. They haven't gotten involved. They haven't stood up. They haven't said no, not enough. And now we are finally seeing with the introduction of critical race theories, parents are standing up and what's happening? They're backing down. These are your kids. It is your responsibility to educate them. And know as that one a politician who is running for governor, I believe in Virginia... He believes that they are more qualified to educate your kids than you are. Really? I stop right there. That's my job. I can delegate that responsibility to someone else who I feel is qualified to do so. But you are the the child's parents and don't let anyone get in between you and your child. So Daniel... He began to be educated in this arena. In verse 11, So Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs set over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants, he says, for ten days. And let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be examined before you. And the appearance of the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacy. And as you see see fit, so deal with us. So check us out. So check us out. Test us. See what happens. And God stepped in. 
and the favor that He gave these four young men and allowed this test to occur. And at the end of the test, verse 14, So He consented with them in this manner and tested them ten days. And at the end of the ten days, their features appeared better and fatter in the flesh. This is why I don't eat vegetables. They... They're fattening. Well, not, not actually. The word there in the Hebrew means they were healthier. They were healthier. The kings, the monarchs, they looked to be more robust physically to indicate their position of privilege and also their health. But God responded by allowing these four men, these four young men, to look better than all the rest. And at the end of the ten days, verse 15, the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies, thus the steward took away their portion of delicacies and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. Now, what was so wrong with eating the king's delicacies? Well, the word defile there is, has its roots back into the old, further back in the Old Testament in the law where individuals were prescribed to eat certain foods and to abstain from others. And if they ate those other foods, they would be defiled before their God, stained, tainted, corrupt. And we know that many of the dishes that the Babylonians ate were of food that the Jewish people were not allowed to eat. We know that. But also there was the idea that many of these meats were offered to idols first before they were consumed. And of course, for a Jewish person, that was very problematic. That was very problematic. And so they had to abstain. But there's a third reason that I think is also interesting to consider. That these young men who are being assimilated into the Babylonian culture when given these delicacies on behalf of the kings to consume. From the food and the wine. Notice that the wine is there too, but the wine wasn't uh, you know, uh, prohibited in Judaism. But Daniel didn't partake of that either. So maybe there's something more going on here. Well, I found that history, historians tell us that by accepting these delicacies before the king and at the hand of the king, By accepting them and consuming them, you were pledging your undivided loyalty and allegiance to that king. And Daniel wouldn't do it because there's a greater king that governed his heart. There was one who sat on the throne and there is no God before him. The one true God was the king of his heart. Paul the Apostle talks about this in the New Testament. And when he writes to the church of Colossae, when he says, Christ must have preeminence in all things in our heart. Yes, we are to obey our government at all, as much as we possibly can, until they ask us to violate our convictions concerning the straight teaching of the Word of God. But, first and foremost, even before I look at myself as an American citizen, I see myself as a child of God and a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. That's where my first and foremost allegiance lies. 
And again, we're instructed throughout the New Testament that how we should pray for our leaders and how we should obey our leaders and how we should try to get along with everyone to the best of our ability. And I say amen to all of that. But first and foremost, my allegiance is to my Savior, to my God. And if someone asks me to violate that relationship, that is when I say to them politely, kindly, no way in the world. Also willing to suffer the consequences that may arise from doing so. But Daniel purposed in his heart that I will not defile myself because God is my true king. Verse 17. And for these four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. God supernaturally, through his spirit, gave them the ability to do what they were going to do. Now at the end of the days when the king, verse 18, had said that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And in verse 19, then the king interviewed them or examined them, put them to the test. That's what that word means. And among them all, none were found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they served before the king. And in all manners of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and the astrologers who were in all his realm. It's important that we understand when the word magician is used there, it's one who practices the occult. When we talk about enchanters, it is used of those who cast incarnations and accomplish the purposes of the king through them. Sorcerers is a special, a specialized in casting spells. Astrologers study the movement of the stars and their influence on the events. And diviners sought to see the future by using various methods. And what this represents is this, that there is no greater wisdom in this world than the wisdom of our God. Notice that all four of these represent all of the aspects that would offer a counter uh, to those things of God. The magicians dealt with the occult, the satanic world. And if you don't think the satanic world is active today, you are grossly misled. Enchanters using incantations to accomplish their purpose. No, there is nothing, no such thing as a good witch, okay? That's not true. A sand witch is pretty good, but a witch... There isn't white witches and black witches, okay? Harry Potter was not a Christian sorcerer. I've heard that argument. It's like, really? God says we should not partake in these things, that we should separate ourselves from these things. Why? Because they're deceitful and misleading, and we don't need the wisdom that they offer because the wisdom of God is so superior to anything that they would offer. Sorcerers in the Old and New Testament also uh, were... That in the New Testament, pharmakia is the word that is used there. It's drug use. Sorcerers in the New Testament use drugs to expand their minds. To connect with the spiritual world. Astrologers look to the creation of God rather than the creator himself. 
for knowledge and understanding. And of course, diviners sought to see the future by using various methods. But understand, God tells us the future in his book, doesn't he? God is going to show the future to Daniel. We are in no need of the wisdom of this world when it comes to all things concerning life and godliness. All of that is found in the person of Jesus Christ and in his word. Paul said, do not be robbed by the various philosophies that will rob you and leave you for dead is what it says in the Greek. And try to undermine the supremacy of Jesus Christ and the sufficiency of his word. But they appeared healthier. They were, God gave them all knowledge. God gave them the position in which they occupied, as He did Joseph and Moses and Esther and David. And now Daniel stands before the king, uniquely put there for the purposes of God. But none of this would happen. None of this would have occurred if Daniel allowed himself to be conformed to this world rather than to be transformed by the renewing of his mind in God. As Paul wrote to us in Romans, which was, of course, the empire of his time, he says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable, perfect will of God. Let me give you four takeaways today. Number one, we are here for a time such as this. We have been selected to be here and now. We are not, we are often not found, I'm sorry, we are not in this position because we chose to be. We're not in this position because of who's president in our nation. We are here and now for the purposes of God and it is God who put us here. Just as he put Daniel for a time such as this. We must be aware of what is happening around us. We cannot put our heads in the sand and hope it will all just go away. We must know and understand to be able to give a defense for the hope that is in us. We need to know and to understand so we can answer the question, bringing every thought into the captivity of Christ and casting down every high argument that exalts itself amongst the knowledge of God. Number three, even though the world is always trying to conform us into its image, let us be purposed in our hearts not to conform to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. One writer wrote this. He said, each believer is either a conformer or a transformer. We're either being squeezed into this world's mold or we're transforming things in the world into which God has put us. Transformers don't always have an easy life, but it is an exciting one. And it gives you great delight to know that God is using you to influence others in a day such as this. One pastor put it this way, very simply. It is time that we as Christians no longer be a thermometer simply reflecting the temperature of our culture. It's time that we become thermostats and change the temperature of our culture. And lastly, number four, let us purpose each and every morning and ask God through the prayer, not my will, but your will be done. Let me glorify you this day. 
And in closing, I leave you with these words. The events recorded in this chapter should be of great encouragement to us when we experience trials and testings and become discouraged. For when God is not allowed to rule, He overrules. God is still on the throne and will never leave us nor forsake us.